Well, good morning, 11 a.m. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Um, we are in a seven-week series called Explore God. Uh, we are running as hard after as we can the seven um, most common and difficult questions that non-Christians ask about Christianity. And uh, they just so happen to be the questions most of you in this room do not want to be asked by a non-Christian. And so uh, we want to go after these. And so um, uh, next week is going to be our final week in Explore God. And I have to say, this has been one of the most enjoyable uh, sermon series for me to embark upon. Uh, My desire and my prayer is that for those of you who are believers in Jesus, um, you have been equipped and better helped um, to be a light for the gospel. Uh, For those of you who are searching, which I know in every service we've had a number of people trying to wrap their heads around Jesus and Christianity, my desire for you is that you have not put the conversation away, but you're digging deeper and you are truly exploring God. Um, So I want to start off, I want to play a little game. It's called answer the rhetorical question. Now, when I say rhetorical, do I mean answer it out loud? The answer is no, answer it in your head. So trust me when I say these are questions you don't want to answer out loud. Um, All right, so ready? Here we go. Is it okay for people of two separate faiths to get married? Remember, in your head, yes or no. Is gay marriage morally good or bad? Is abortion sometimes right or always wrong? Is polygamy sometimes right or always wrong? You're like, this is my first time at Village Church, and we've already talked about uh, interfaith marriages, gay marriage, abortion, polygamy. Let's step it up a little bit. Is racism wrong? Is slavery wrong? Is child sacrifice wrong? Is pedophilia wrong? wrong. Got your answers? I hope they came quickly to you, by the way, (laughs) for what it's worth. How you answer these questions comes down to how you answer one bigger question, before I even tell you that bigger question. It is striking that depending on where you grew up, what century you lived, and what microculture you grew up in, your Passionate answers to these questions shift from city to city, region to region, town to town, country by country, century by century, millennia by millennia. That interesting. That, that there are groups of people that I could sit in front of right now and we could capture some microculture in human history and they would advocate the complete opposite of what makes you feel sick to your stomach. How you answer these questions actually comes back to a very much bigger question, and here is that question. What is my authority? What is my authority? And I have so far figured out two plausible options that the human race has. The first first option is culture. And what you're going to find is that the masses almost always, this is their authority. Um, Your kids, by the way, there, there is an onslaught to come after your children, and culture has a perspective and an agenda, and they want to make your kids conform to its image. And don't get me wrong, it's easy, is it not? So most people's questions or answers to the questions that I asked you have been predetermined and pre-programmed into their brains because of the culture 
that they live in. Isn't that interesting? Most people have an intuitive, instant response. And what most people don't understand is that your microcultures and, uh, are predetermining and pre-programming your response. So culture is this quiet, powerful force predetermining for everyone in this room what you see as good, <clears throat> beautiful, and true. Let me give you an example. You go back to the 1970s, and yes, men wore the ugliest suits you have ever seen on the planet. Like, I, I don't even know what goes through your brain. And so you get up one day, and you're like, I look good. I'm sorry. Objective, fact, transcends all of human history. No, you didn't, and no, you don't, right? Like, that's the problem. But no, but then they went outside, and other people were like, I want to be like that guy, Right? So there's this whole cultural blindness that just overtook a whole generation of people. And culture pre-programmed you. It predetermined what you saw as good and beautiful and right and moral and true. And we didn't even know what's happening. In fact, it's happening to us right now. That so much of what we believe is good and right and true and beautiful and moral has been pre-programmed inside of us. Now, when I sit down with most high school students and college students who are not believers, uh, I put together kind of a list of some summary statements that I have heard from a number of people in different ways. And they go like this. Number one, I determine my reality. Like from my worldview, that actually doesn't even make sense. But in their brain, that is good and true and moral and beautiful. How is it two people living in the same country at the same period of time can look at the same statement from different moral perspectives? It's our microcultures. One, one, one kid said this, no one can tell me my truth. What does it even mean? To them, it was good and moral and thoughtful and logical and true and grounded. And it was actually uncontestable. For me, I've got a bajillion questions. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Go on. Who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Here's one. You be you, I'll be me. My favorite one of all. If it doesn't hurt anyone, then I don't believe it's wrong. Now, I want you to hear me. The people who say these things, which some of you in this room actually may personally identify with those concepts, uh, your motivations are not bad or evil. You're not waking up and saying, I'm going to be the next Hitler and ruin the whole world. Like, you're actually believing to the core of your bones that what you're saying is good and true and agreeable and beautiful and moral. Like, you believe these things to the core. At the end of the day, though, all these are, are regurgitations of cultural concepts. That's all they are. There's regurgitations of the same things. And it's interesting that in any given culture that you live in, we're all regurgitating the same phrases in different ways over and over and over again. And we think we're novel and creative and unique and our own person. And we're actually just conforming to the same regurgitated concepts that are coming up in kid after kid and adult after adult, TV show after TV show. And we mindlessly buy into them until we become disenchanted. Until you realize, how is this thing called culture changing so quickly and so rapidly? Here's a great illustration. Um, If you ran for president in 2004, um, you could run on a platform with very clear moral boundaries. Um, it, by 2008, some, of the, some people from specific parties are beginning to apologize and recant for former beliefs. You get to 2012, right? Things people staunchly stood for and advocated against, now they have to apologize for publicly. 
Um, over the last five to six years, we have seen a transformation of what is good, right, true, wrong, right, moral, beautiful, ugly, of epic proportions to the point where even politicians are regularly having to apologize for what they believed just two years ago and they were applauded for. At some point, you realize when you live in this culture, like it can't be wrong there and right here or right here and wrong there. Like there's got to be something bigger. And I really do believe, I really do believe that the logical, thinking, non-Christian should quickly become disenchanted with this entire cultural transition we're going, going through right now. I think you should be able to look at it and say something is radically broken and illogical. How can it be objectively good here and just two years later it is objectively evil? Like how do you make that kind of transition? Now here, here's the second answer to the question, what is my authority? Option number one is culture. Option number two is revelation. You have one of two options. You find something external to you, not confined by the boundaries of cultures, which is going to have to be divine in nature, um, or you're going to bend the knee and succumb to the authority of culture, which is always changing. Revelation is something transcendent. It is something divine. It is something from God. And this is what I love about Revelation. Revelation imposes itself onto culture. It imposes itself on every culture, in every century, in every millennia, in every place, in the entire world. When you have divine revelation from God, it is not just true sometimes. When understood in its context, it's true all the time, everywhere. So let me give you an example. Racism, we know this because of revelation, not because of culture. Racism is always wrong everywhere. Slavery is always wrong everywhere. Child sacrifice is always wrong everywhere. Pedophilia is always wrong everywhere. Now, what's interesting is if culture is my authority, I can't say that because there are cultures, even to this day, that would not agree with that because their cultures have predetermined and pre-programmed their minds to call all of these things acceptable. Culture is whimsical, and it changes from left to right. And just when you think you're culturally relevant, you are out of date and irrelevant. And just when you thought you were moral, you're now immoral. And the very things you were against, now you're condemned because you were against them in the first place. The same culture that applauds you will ruin you within two years. And it will demand your soul with every new idea that creeps forward. And it will say, conform to our new ideas, or you're dead. That's the idea. It's nasty and it's ugly. Eventually, the thinking, logical person has to be able to come to this conclusion and become disenchanted with culture and say there's got to be something bigger and more objective that is just true always, despite the century, the millennia, the region, or the people. Now, in Explore God, we're dealing with these six, seven big questions. Today's number six. And the question is this. Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? Can I trust the Bible, this collection of 66 books, as revelation from God that has authority not just over my nation, not just over my culture, not just over my school, but over my life and my soul here and today and forevermore. Is the Bible truly revelation from God with authority? So what I want to do first is I want to diagnose the problem. Uh, There are so many skeptics when it comes to the Bible. There are even Christians who love Jesus, and they are struggling with their questions about the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Why the lack of trust? I'll give you maybe three reasons. Number one, the lack of trust comes down to cultural differences that feel unreconcilable. So if you are a 21st century Western American, 2019, 
Um, you subconsciously believe a lie that you are, the, you are the height and the pinnacle of enlightenment. And that all the rest of human history is somehow lacked behind your present moment and present thoughts. It, it's just part of being an American in this place in this time. We have to die to that because maybe, maybe some of the ancients were onto something that we have just royally, royally missed. And so what happens is we have this preconditioned, pre-programmed idea that we're the smartest people the world has ever known. And so what happens then is we look at our culture and our emerging enlightened values, and then we contrast it with 3,000 years ago. And the discrepancy just feels so often we're already pre-programmed to dismiss old ideas as irrelevant and antiquated. But what if they're not? What if those ideas were from revelation? What if those ideas were from God? And what if those ideas are transcendent and forever and they should be imposed on 21st century American culture? What if the very culture you believe in in five years will, will, will be loathed and talked neg- negatively about and you'll be condemned for believing the things you believe? And, and, and so I, I do believe we step back and most people are like, I don't know how to reconcile my conviction that I am enlightened and I am the chief of humanity in terms of my ideas and morals and what I read in the Bible. That's one. Number two, a lack of belief in the divine. So the way I would, I would compare this is it's like somebody comes up to me and they say, hey, there's a unicorn. The unicorn wrote a book. And the book is true for everyone, always, everywhere. The book is also thousands of pages long with really small words and it's really hard to understand. Um, but everything it says is true and you should bend the knee to it. Will I even read the book? No, because they don't believe in unicorns. Welcome to how most Americans are viewing the Bible right now. They don't believe that there is a sovereign creator specifically and meticulously revealing his heart and his mind and his character. They believe in that like they believe a unicorn. And then we're like, see this enormous book with tons of words that's ancient, written like thousands of years ago? And they're, having a hard, like they're not even interested in opening it. Let alone, would you go to a worship service where they worship the unicorn? Like, you wouldn't. Welcome to some of the challenges that we have in overcoming people's perception of of the Bible. Lack of belief in the divine. Number three, and actually this is the one I want to go after this morning, is um, pop culture myths about the Bible. There There are so many wrong, just factually wrong ideas and myths floating around the pop culture ether about where the Bible came from, and it's just written for men, and there's contradictions all over it. We could go on and on and on. So, like, I'm a guy, like, like I study the Bible for a living, and I can't tell you how many times where I would just want to say, actually, that's wrong. Nope, that's not right. <clears throat> nope, that's, nope, you're off. Nope, historically, that's inaccurate. Uh, you know, and, and I can't, because the pop culture ideas are taken as sacred, true, and unchallengeable. Unchallengeable. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to begin to debunk some of those myths. And uh, the way I want to go about this is we're going to talk about maybe a subject you've never heard in church before, which is how did we get our Bible? Like how did we arrive at 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament? Like where did they come from? Like did they just magically pop out of the air one day? And so my hope in doing this with you is to equip your minds and to encourage your hearts. I want to give you maybe even three bigger goals here this morning. I want to increase your confidence. I want to increase your confidence that the Bible itself is a miracle book, and that it is authoritative, and that it has authority over your life no matter what culture you live in, and that it is true and appropriate and applicable for all people throughout all of history for now and forevermore. 
Uh, Number two, what I want to do is increase your discernment. I want you to be able to spot pop culture myths about the Bible, and I want you to be able to notice them and at least give you an avenue where you can go research and figure some more things out. Number three, though, I want to increase your excitement. Um, I love the Bible. I teach the Bible for a living. Like, this is like, I spend more time studying God's Word, and it is one of the most amazing, in its context, beautiful, enamoring, um, complicated, yet so simple of books I ever could have imagined engaging. I love it so much, and I want you to love it too. But so much of my love for it has been rooted in my study, even of how it got here, how we have it, what I'm holding in my hands, how miraculous of a book it really is. All right, so let's clear the air. I'm going to, off the bat, debunk a whole bunch of myths really quickly. Ready to go? Yes, we're ready to go. Awesome. The Bible was not dropped from heaven in a leather-bound book. Amen? Thank God. The Bible was not delivered by an angel like the Quran. The Bible was not dug up in a farmer's field in the form of golden plates like the Book of Mormon. All due respect, but none given. The Bible was not suddenly... Discovered in a clay jar with 66 books intact. The Bible is not one book, but a collection of 66 sacred books. The Bible was not written all at once, but over 16 plus centuries, 1500 BC to about 100 AD. That's the written form of it. The Bible was not written in English. You KJV only. I I love you to death. But it was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And anyway, so that's... um, So that's that. The Bible is not true because a council or a church or a pastor says it's true. It's true because it's true. It's true, we believe, because God wrote it and it's true. I know that's like a circular logic and reasoning, um, but it's not true because anybody calls it true. It's true because it's true, and then when you study the evidence, it just validates it as true. Two plus two equals four, that's true. Not because I said it, because even as you like put up four fingers, and you add two and add two more, you're like, oh, it's true. Why is it true? Because it's true. And that's how the Bible is also. So I I invite people, walk down the path, challenge it, test it, take your pop culture myths and put them against the Word of God, and don't settle for pop culture explanations. Dig into the context and the text. It's a beautiful thing, and I think you're going to love it. There is one word uh, we have to agree that we understand and are using it in the same way. Um, This one word that's going to guide us for the rest of our message is the word cannon. By cannon, I do not mean the big thing that explodes and shoots cannonballs. Um, Cannon is very simply the list of books that are recognized as scripture. Uh, The word canon comes from a Greek word, which means read, and it was a standard by which things are measured. And so when people talk about the canon of Scripture, they're talking about the totality of the books that we can call revelation from God with authority over every human being. And so these are books that God has divinely inspired, motivated, brought to fruition in his own way through specific people, and these are books that we would call Scripture. So when we refer to canon— we're referring to the unique collection and set of books that are from God for humanity, for our good and his glory. So that's canon. Now, uh, the canon assumes a couple things. The first thing it assumes is this. God wants to be known personally and specifically through revelation. Uh, the, the very even concept of canon tells us this, that God wants us documenting and writing words that reveal him and his heart. Number two, 
it also tells us that God has revealed himself to a specific group of people in the form of writing. And that God has chosen a very specific set of people. And we're going to get, as we get to the end of this, you're going to see how diverse that group of people is. But there are people that he has plucked out and set aside to write, reveal, and document the very words that he wants us to have. At the end of the day, whenever you pick up your Bible, whenever you pick up the canon of Scripture, here's what you should be able to walk away with. God wants me to know him personally. God is revealing himself, his ideas, his values, his methods, his plans, the future, with unbelievable and beautiful clarity. Now, this next section is going to be more of what I would just call like lecture. It's time to get a little bit smarter because in preaching, I don't believe we should just talk to your hearts and your actions. I think your minds need to be instructed as well. I also recognize often whenever I go to more of an information format, um, some of you zone out and fall asleep. So have at it. If you want a holy nap, go for it. But, <laughs> but I do believe that it is incumbent upon you to learn how you got this thing because there is a beautiful story behind this and it's worth understanding. And then eventually, your kids or your grandkids, they're going to want information. And you can come back to sermons like this or podcasts, and you can say, let's listen together and figure it out, because it really is a beautiful story. Uh, question number one, how did the Old Testament canon develop? Uh, 39 books, Old Testament, a set of books that are designated as authoritative by God. Three ways. Number one, by God's orchestration. Number two, through prophets who spoke and wrote for God. And number three, progressively in four stages over about a thousand years. We're talking about just the written form of the Old Testament. I want to walk through each of these four stages with you. Um, Stage number one, uh, what was the first canon, the first Bible that the people of God ever had written down? And very simply, the first canon was the Ten Commandments. It wasn't even a book. It was ten words, most literally. And so here's what happened. Uh, Verse 27, Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. What is it? The Ten Commandments. This was it. If you sat down with Moses in the wilderness and said, what's your Bible? This is what he would give you. Now, as as they spent more time in the wilderness, we get to the second stage of the development of what we call our Old Testament canon. This is what's called the law. Another word for this is the Pentateuch. Uh, Pop quiz, Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the five books of the law. Uh, The vast majority of this was written by Moses himself, except it's kind of clear that Moses didn't write the story of his death and how it all happened. So Joshua uh, came in after that, and it seems that Joshua filled in the missing links of his death at that point. And so here's what we have in Deuteronomy 31. It says this, verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, and what God wanted to do was take all of the oral tradition that had been circulating amongst the Jewish people from Abraham on and even before to take this and with finality document it so the people of God would no longer have question to its legitimacy, truthfulness, or authority. One of the greatest gifts God has given to us is not just the oral tradition that this was built upon, but the written word which would forever be marked as permanent. Beautiful thing that we 
have been given. But this is the second law. If you were at the very end of the wilderness experience and you talked to Moses and said, what is your canon? They would open up the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of what we now know as the Bible. There's a third stage, and this is called the histories. These are books like First and Second Samuel, Chronicles, uh, Kings. They tell the story of the people of God throughout history. And what God would do is raise up men to document these. Because as you document the story of Israel, you're also documenting the story of God as he intervenes in history and builds a nation and a culture through which the Messiah would come. Israel, and all of these books, aren't just about Israel. They're about what Israel is prepping and preparing for, which is ultimately the Messiah who would come later on. The fourth stage of the Old Testament canon is what's called the writings. And in the writings, you have um, poetry, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, etc. Very beautiful, poetic, articulate, wonderful, meaningful, emotional set of books that really represented the heart of humanity and the heart of God. Some of the most beautiful literature ever written are these books in their Hebrew context. Jesus is referencing um, this threefold breakdown, and here's what he says in Luke 24. He says, these are my words which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And, and Jesus uses the concept of Psalms as a catch-all for the writings, the poets, and all of this stuff. And, and this is the threefold breakdown that Jesus used as he thought about the canon. We step back and we say the canon developed in four stages over a thousand years. The canon developed by the orchestration of God through men who we could call prophets. They spoke for God and they wrote for God and God brought this together. Now what's really cool is that the Jews had this interesting understanding that um, the canon was open. The canon was open because God was continuing to reveal himself. Their understanding is that it was open and they were continually waiting for new revelation from God. Now, just so I can like calm your hearts, is the canon now open or closed? Say closed. All right, good. So we're talking about Jews from their perspective. I can already hear some of you. Before Moses, we talked about this oral tradition. And what God did is he took this beautiful, meticulous, well-thought-out oral tradition, and he began to document it with permanence. And then what developed amongst the Jewish people was the scribal tradition, where meticulous rules and laws were developed around a community of people called scribes, and they would copy, make copies of copies of copies, and they were meticulous about its specificity. Their entire goal in life was to preserve with clarity the word of God. And so between the oral tradition and the scribal tradition, we've had some unbelievable, unbelievable amounts of clarity with what the canon was and whether or not we can rely on it. Now, if I'm you, I have a bunch of questions. So let's just ask them. Here's my next question. Why do Catholics, and Orthodox for that matter, um, why do they have extra books? Anybody ever wondered that? Three of you. Good. So the rest of you understand it. For the three of you, let me entertain you for a moment. Um, There is a period of history called the intertestamental period. This is from about 435 BC, the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, uh, through the time of Jesus Christ, through the first century AD. What happened during this time is that there were no prophets of God writing scripture, revealing things. And, and one of the ways they knew it was going to be scripture is that it would be tested, etc. But also, by and large, it would be written in Hebrew or Aramaic, which was a subcategory of a Semitic Hebrew language. And so what happened is all of the prophets stopped. No more revelation. 
And you can imagine that you're the people of God and you're under the oppressive regime of Greece and then Rome in this 400 years. And you're trying to get your head around, where is God? What is he doing? Why is he not talking to us? He's always been talking to us. In this time, though, um, there was an incredible amount of literature written. And the literature is what's called apocryphal literature or the apocrypha. And it means hidden. And Apocrypha is a group of Jewish books written not in Hebrew, but what language? In Greek during the intertestamental period. Uh, They are deemed valuable, generally speaking, historically reliable. Don't get me wrong, there's some crazy apocryphal books, but by and large, the Jewish community in this time uh, began writing and training and thinking in the Greek language, and they they continued to document the history of the Jewish people. Um, of this group of apocryphal books, there's a subcategory called deuterocanonical. Uh, again, don't get lost in the amount of syllables. Deutero means second, canonical means canon. And these are a group of, of books that some of the early Jews and Christians tried to declare as being a part of the canon, the accepted books of revelation from God. Lots of debate on these. Um, but this is a small group of books that currently the Catholics and the Orthodox, they would consider scripture. And so here's what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of just, with simplicity and clarity, um, help you understand, um, even biblically and historically, why um, I can stand here with good good conscience and confidence and tell you that these deuterocanonical books I don't believe have any place in the canon. Although, are they good history books to read? The answer is, yeah. Are they interesting? Yeah. Do they snapshot the Jewish culture in the intertestamental period and their plight? Absolutely. So I'm going to answer by asking the next question. What Old Testament canon did Jesus and the Jews use? Like in theory, like if Jesus had a specific canon, don't you feel like you'd want to use that one? Like that's just a logical thought to me. Um, And so here's what happened. In about 80, 90, 100, there was a a council, a council of Jewish leaders in a place called Jamnia. And one of their, their tasks was to decide once and for all what was the Old Testament Jewish canon. And, and, and in the debate were these deuterocanonical books. And their question was, are these scripture? And at the Council of Jamnia, the decision was clear. It was final. The deuterocanonical books, all those books written in the intertestamental period that tell the story of the Jews are not scripture. Good history, good for the people of God. They're not canon. And they developed what's called the Palestinian canon. This is actually the exact canon that we as Protestants would use today, the 39 books of the Old Testament. So my next question would be, well, all right, we see that the Jewish people, now I I actually want to read this scripture to you because I think this is very important. Paul says this, what advantage has the Jew? Romans 3. Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. And he's going to talk about all that, but he starts and he says this. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with what? The oracles of God, the word of God. God took and set apart this group of people. And this group of people were entrusted by God to steward and to manage the word of God. And so into the first century, the Jews stepped aside and they just said, the Palestinian canon, this is it. We cannot validate the deuterocanonical books as canon. And so we get to Jesus now. What was Jesus' canon? And we know unequivocally that Jesus' canon was the Palestinian canon. Even Jesus himself groups the Bible into three categories. He calls it the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which again is often a catch-all term for the writings and the poetical literature of the Old Testament. Jesus had zero categories for deuterocanonical literature. And if I'm you again, I'm thinking, prove it. Jesus quotes countless times the Old Testament. 
specifically and inferentially, more than you could possibly imagine. Never once does he quote or infer from any of the Deuterocanonical books, ever, at all. Which leads me to my next question, which is, well, what canon of the Old Testament did the apostles use? Uh, I want to read these, these stats to you because I think it's really important. And it doesn't just make the point, it proves the point. So Old Test- our Old Testament, it's quoted at least 295 times as Scripture in the, in the New Testament. So the New Testament says, this is Scripture, quotes it, and you know that they're quoting it as Scripture. Our Old Testament is directly referenced 695 times in the New Testament. Our Old Testament is indirectly referenced 4,105 times in the New Testament. Even, even secular writings get quoted in the New Testament four times. How many times were the seven deuterocanonical books referenced in the New Testament? Zero. Zero. What does, what does that tell you? It's not even in their categories. Like the, the, the apostles and the disciples and the, the writers of the New Testament, they are literally in every book referencing left and right the Palestinian canon, but never once, never once do they even reference the deuterocanonical books. And so for me, I step back and I'm just like, listen, it's really clear what the Jewish canon was. It's really clear what Jesus' canon was. And it's also really clear what the apostles and disciples' canon was. And if it's good for Jesus, it's good for me. How's that? We're all good there? Good. Now, one of the challenges is that there's this thing that happens in culture where when more perspectives are on the table, it diminishes our confidence. The problem is you have one perspective that is super clear, consistent, and easy. And you have other perspectives that honestly muddy the water, aren't built on great foundations, and historically, you can look back at why the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox Church put these books in. And it's a little bit shady, to be honest. When you disagree with Jesus, the Jews, and the apostles, like you're not probably on good footing. But at the same time, just because there's competing ideas doesn't mean all ideas are equal and valid. This is actually one of the hardest things about teaching people to trust the Bible. Because people have so many opinions on the Bible, the perception is, well, there's so many opinions, we can never know what's true. But here's the deal. If God was going to reveal himself, it should, with a little bit of research and study, become self-evident if there's divine origins in this thing. And so what I love to encourage people with is, look, this, this book is a masterpiece. The Old Testament is unbelievable. Don't be afraid to study it. Get rid of all the pop culture myths and actually study if it is historically reliable. Here's another fun question. What books almost didn't make it into the Old Testament canon and why? Esther never mentions God. Lots of debate on the book of Esther. Song of Solomon, way too sexual. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel. Um, This wasn't an easy process. There was debate. There was arguing. There was fighting. But at the end of the day, the Palestinian canon was agreed upon. I think one of the most encouraging things for you to study would be the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest gifts to Bible scholars ever. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, before them, the latest Old Testament manuscripts we had were from around the 9th or 10th century A.D., Right, that's a long distance between the, the actual writing of the Old Testament books and the earliest manuscripts that we have. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they found um, were manuscripts dating back from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D. in this little desert community. And so what they found are portions of almost every single book of the Old Testament and the entire book of Isaiah. And you know what they found? They found that the, uh, our text of the Old Testament 
was consistent up to 95% meticulous. Now you might say 95%. Don't ever be concerned about that 5%. I'm going to tell you why. Because the more differences that you have in a set group of documents, the more information you have to actually figure out what the original was. And so when you find textual variants or differences between manuscripts, all that is is more evidence that gives you more clarity and confidence as to what the original was. In fact, in that 5%, we, we know without almost a shadow of a doubt that the vast majority were scribal errors, which happens all the time because we are still human. I don't care if you're a scribe or otherwise. We are still human. And you can start watching how scribal errors originated. And these variances are some of the greatest gifts to textual critics who are trying to discern what the original authors actually wrote. And so what we found here is that this 95% was all substantive. And the 5% actually gave us an incredible amount of information to deduce what the originals were actually saying. It was amazing the way science and all of this works. Uh, The person who is wanting to disprove the Bible will say, see, 95%. Like, I'll, I'll tell you. I will tell you right now that what they found in the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were copies of copies of copies. That, that, that is not a question. But people will throw that information out as if to discourage you. But actually within the information, you have everything you need to discern as far back as 200 BC, the canon of scripture that those people were using. Uh, number two, the New Testament. How did the early church determine the New Testament canon? I want to remind you of their goal. Their goal was not to sanction canon, but to recognize it. So if I go into a, a pet store, and you say, Michael, go find all the bunny rabbits. By plucking out the bunny rabbits, I'm not making them bunny rabbits, am I? I'm just recognizing that they're already bunny rabbits. And so the challenge of the early church was not to make books scripture, The challenge was to recognize which books were scripture. And so they had some standards that they would test these, four specific standards. Uh, Number one, was it apostolic in nature? Did it have apostolic authorship or endorsement? Number two would be acceptance. Was it accepted as authoritative by the early church? Did other people understand, no, this book really was written by Peter or James or John or Jude or Paul, and can we document that? And is there a level of acceptance that we can count on? Consistency. Documents must have the overall feel and character of confirmed writings. There are some crazy books written in the first and second century that claim to be the Word of God, and they are not so. In fact, we can look at them, and we can date them as later, and we can date them as as, uh, uh, disingenuous, but uh, there is something about Scripture. It has a consistent feel and character to it the more you study it. It has to be orthodox, meaning harmonized with uncontested books and uncontested doctrines. And so these were some of the rules by which this early church would try to figure it out. Now, it wasn't until the late 4th century that the New Testament canon, the set of authoritative books, was finalized. And if I'm you, here's what I'm asking. Why did it take almost 400 years or 350 years to finalize a canon? I want to tell you why. Because they didn't have email. Because they didn't have technology like this. Because... For the first 300 years of the church, Rome was trying to hunt them down and kill them and burn their holy books. And so I want you to imagine you have a second generation copy of the book of Romans. And um, you are, are, are wanting to prove that this is the word of God. So you write a letter across the world by horse 
Three months later, the letter gets there. But you have questions. And so you write a letter back saying, but what about this? And then three months later, he gets it. And you say, oh, no way. Three months later, he gets it. And he says, I got to ask John and Alexandria. He writes a letter over there. Three months. I mean, you get how it takes a long time in a context and culture of persecution to nail anything down of substance, let alone the hundreds of people who were involved in these discussions. So what started to happen, especially in the early 300 ADs, is that there was incredible persecution. And Diocletian would come in, and he would, was trying to weed out the Christian community. And so what he would do is he would say, give me all of your holy books. And he knew they had them, so you've got to give them something. So what do you give them? Do you give them, well, I've got 10 books. Three of them we think are the Bible. Seven of them aren't. Give them the ones that aren't. We're going to keep these ones and hide them. And so what happened in about 325 AD is Christianity becomes the legal uh, religion of the empire. Constantine and others after him uh, start gathering all of these church leaders from around the world, bringing them to what's called synods or councils. They gathered them all together and said, make a decision. Be- between all of you, you represent the global worldwide church. You have more knowledge and understanding and history at, at your fingertips. What is true? You have more references. You can, you can figure this stuff out. And so uh, at the... Um, Council of Hippo in the late 4th century, they agreed on the 27 books. It didn't take a long time because there was controversy. It took a long time because there was persecution. What New Testament books almost didn't make it? Like, there were some on the cutting room floor that didn't make it almost. Hebrews. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a hard book. It is unlike any other book in the New Testament. James Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter. This one kills me. Revelation almost didn't make it. Like, how much more boring would church be if Revelation was never in there? Like, we love to fight about Revelation. I'm pre-trib, I'm post-trib, blah, 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 right? It's so much fun. So, why are the New Testament books ordered this way? They were actually ordered on purpose. The Gospels and the narratives were put first because the whole New Testament is about Jesus. It was laying Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the foundation for everything. Why do Paul's letters follow? All of Paul's letters follow. Usually in order of word length, by the way, for what it's worth. Um, Why do they follow? Because he was said to be the clearest, most articulate of the early church theologians. Why is Hebrews right after the, the letters of Paul? Well, because nobody really ever knew whether Paul wrote it or somebody else did, and there was debate, and like, well, it's the closest thing to Paul we can get, and so we'll just put it at the end as a question mark. Why are all the general epistles right after that? Well, because they're not Paul, and they just put them all together. And why is Revelation at the end? Well, how else would you finish the book, right? I mean, it's like, it's the only acceptable place to put that. Are we missing any books? Did you know that we are? We are missing the first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. We are missing a letter from Paul to the church in Laodicea. That are referenced in the New Testament, but we don't, we don't have them. Here's, here's my, my dream one day. As a preacher, this would be like the delight of my life. That somebody uncovers an original manuscript of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And then all the Bibles in the world have to get like thrown out, you know? And then we reproduce them all, new leather-bound Bibles, and every, every guy who's written his own Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, and everyone else, they got to redo them all. And then there's all of this new talk, and new, like every church in America should be preaching on zero Corinthians. That's what they should be doing. Or, or Laodiceans, you know? Like, how much fun would that be? Anyways, my dream is that one day we find them, and it changes the whole face of biblical scholarship, and uh, it gets people uh, excited anew in the Word of God to figure out where are their inconsistencies, and it's going to be a blast if it ever happens. Number six, why did so many books 
not make the New Testament canon. You ever heard of these? The Gospel of St. Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. What happened is there is a, a school of thought called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, you know it the moment you read it. They are the weirdest books you will ever read in your life. They are so strange. Uh, part of Gnostic culture is that someone would write a book, they would take a, a pseudonym of a biblical figure, and they would make up narratives and stories that were crazy and audacious and out of this world. And so what happens is liberal scholars would say, well, it was all a hoax. The canon was all just one big joke. They, they got rid of the earlier, um, more controversial writings. Um, you can date almost all the, the Gnostic um, writings to the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries. Um, they're crazy. They're not even historically reliable. It takes very little effort to figure out what is Gnostic and what is not. And in the first century, the Gnostic writings were just not that big of a deal. Uh, in fact, we have enough circulation to know that the vast majority of them weren't even in existence until the second, third, and fourth century. It takes a little bit of thinking and to read some pretty reputable secular and Christian scholars to realize these books are complete jokes and they have no basis in first century history. Uh, number seven, can I trust New Testament manuscripts? Uh, this is, um, uh, if I could encourage any of you thinking people to study one science that would help you trust the Bible better, it would be the science of textual criticism. These are genius men and women who find thousands of manuscripts, and their job is to be historical sleuths and figure out what were the original authors penning when they wrote their words. Um, I, I want to show you this um, uh, grid, and then I want to help you understand why it's so important. Um, you can tell when, when these things are written from Caesar, Plato, Tacitus, Homer, New Testament. Um, the earliest fragments are copies when you have them, the time span in years, and then the number of manuscripts. The earliest copies that we have are 25 to 50 years away from the original writings. That's pretty sweet, eh? Given the fact that when Paul penned his letter, he had no expectation that that actual document itself was going to be preserved for all of human history. Uh, they didn't write it for preservation. They wrote it for copy. Copy was normal. That's the expectation. You like it. You want to send this letter to another church? Make a copy. Send it over there. And so here's what you have. I mean, Homer's Iliad, biggest one, 643 numbers of the manuscripts, 500-year time span, okay? Go to the New Testament, 24,000. First of all, that's awesome. Second of all, that is an unbelievable amount of evidence that gives textual critics everything they know to tell you what the original authors actually wrote with, I want you to catch this, I'm going to confuse you, with 101% certainty. You're like, what? That's not possible. It is. I'm going to tell you why. We have 101% of everything the authors originally wrote. We may have like a, a jot or a tittle that's off, but everything else, 101%. But then there are these extra little parts of your New Testament where if you're reading, they might be in parentheses or italicized. There's a little note that says, earliest manuscripts don't include these, right? And so we put them in there. Like, we're pretty positive they weren't original. Some scribe added them later. Maybe it was commentary, something of the sorts, right? Um, and so what happens, though, is, we, is, is that oftentimes book publishers put them in, and then they say, we don't know. We do know we have everything, but these ones are like question mark, but there's no disagreement in substance or doctrine. So no harm, no foul. We think it's not, but just in case, cross our fingers. We'll see if it is. Uh, there's one passage of scripture where Jesus talks about demons and says these only come out by prayer and fasting. Um, earliest manuscripts don't have fasting. Probably doesn't even seem to be a part of it. Um, but sometimes some versions will include it, some won't. 
and there'll usually be a little footnote that says, I don't know, it doesn't hurt to fast anyway, so go after it. Um, all right, so what? I'm going to give you a couple so what's. Number one, the Bible, it has a clear storyline from beginning to end, and it is all about Jesus. From Genesis 1 to the very end, there is this anticipation of a Savior, of a Messiah. I mean, the moment in Genesis 3, sin hits the ground, you're waiting for a, a Redeemer. You're waiting for someone to make it right. And what's so beautiful about the, the story of the Bible is one of the miracles of it is that from beginning to end, it is about sin and a Savior and waiting from everything from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Even in Genesis 1, you get this notion that God is plural, one God and three persons. In Genesis 3, you're waiting for the seed of Adam, and this thing just builds and builds and builds. And over a thousand years of Old Testament writing, all these different people in different countries, it's all just pointing to the same theme, and it culminates in the person of Jesus. Number two, I think the Bible is just such a kind gift from God to humanity. Like, how amazing of the Lord to give us this. There is this idea um, that because the books are old, they're unreliable. I would actually take the opposite stance. If there is a good God who loves us, would you not expect from the very beginning of creation, he would be revealing himself and people would be documenting it? Right? So the very fact that antiquity is filled with revelations of God to himself captured in writing should be of no surprise and actually affirm the very narrative that we preach, which is there is a good God who created us and loves us and wants us to know, know him personally. And so it actually just doesn't surprise me that for thousands of years, God is revealing and documenting and writing it down. And that he captured it in what we call now the canon of scripture. And now this canon stands as a testimony for all of humanity about who God is. And then the, the culmination of all the, the canon is Jesus himself, the living word representing and being truly God in the flesh. All right, number three, the Bible is a miracle. It is a sheer and utter miracle. It's meticulous in its unity. It is miraculous in its preservation over millennia despite war, despots, and persecution. It is also meticulous and miraculous in its historical accuracy, validated through secular and theistic archaeology. It is miraculous in its theological consistency and dominant theme. It's miraculous in its unity of thought despite multiple cross-cultural authors not knowing one another. It is miraculous in its sheer power to change lives. It's miraculous in its power to transform nations and cultures and civilizations. I want to read you what one author wrote on the canon, and I found it to be one of the most encouraging and insightful descriptions of canon. Here's what he says. The canon is a miracle. The canon is comprised of 66 books written by more than 40 authors. These authors were kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, scholars, historians, prophets, tax collectors, tent makers, military leaders, prime ministers, and doctors. They wrote from dungeons, palaces, roads, islands, hillsides, and deserts across Africa, Asia, and Europe. These authors wrote these books in their original languages, which included Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Their literary styles included poetry, history, letters, prophecy, Proverbs, and biographies. 
The time frame of its writing occurred over 15 to 1600 years with no material inconsistencies or contradictions. And the Bible remains one unified masterpiece from beginning to end. The impossible consistency screams of a divine architect who purposely and seamlessly moved men to record his words throughout continents, cultures, and history. But God did not just inspire each author's content. He also orchestrated each book's place in what we call the canon. That's a miracle. That many people from that many different continents, from that many different countries, from that many different centuries should never agree on one thing unless it's divinely orchestrated. Finally, the Bible cannot be trusted until you trust in Jesus. There is nothing that I'm going to tell you that is going to make you love God. My, my hope is this. I want to kill myths. I want to increase confidence. I want to push you back to study whether or not the Bible can truly be trusted. Um, but, the, but the Bible itself actually has this really unique category for non-Christians who read the Bible. I want, to, I want to help you understand it. Jesus hints at it, and then Paul elaborates. Here's what Jesus says. Remember this where he talks about the three breakdowns? He says, these are my words which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then Jesus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Anybody can read the Bible and get it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to do that. A little bit of study, a little bit of research, a little bit of knowledge. But in order to understand it in your heart requires something bigger. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in 2 Corinthians 3. Here's what he says. But there, the unbelieving Israelites, they're an illustration he's using, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, that veil remains unlifted. Why? Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Isn't that amazing? He's not talking about an intellectual veil. He's talking about an affection veil, a trusting veil. I don't just see the Bible and examine it for what it is. I love the Bible, and the Bible forms me and changes me. Paul goes on, he says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, not talking about those who have the Holy Spirit, we all, with unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. This is in the written word and the living word. We're being transformed into the same image, Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, one degree of Christ-likeness to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I, want, I just want to make it very clear that you understand like, my motivation in this. If you are especially in the process of exploring God, I can't convince you of anything. But here's what you're going to find, that when you, when you trust in Christ, the Bible will take on a whole new beautiful experience for you. Because the Spirit of God, whom you're given when you trust in Jesus, as you interact with the Word of God, will ignite change in you slowly, but oh so powerfully. Uh, I want to take a minute. I want to pray for each one of you, and then uh, we're going to celebrate communion. Sound good? All right. Father, so much more to say. And um, mind-numbed at the beauty of what you've given us through your written word and through Jesus, the living word. God, I know we have so many questions. There's so many nuances. There's so many details here. But God, I pray very quickly you would, you would give us unusual and unbelievable confidence in your word. I know there are so many myths and ideas and sometimes 
all of these ideas can have the net effect of making us maybe doubt. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would give us, yeah, that unusual confidence. As we read the Bible, it testifies to us that this truly is not just some human man talking about human things, but but your inspiration is through it and under it and around it, and it is life-giving. God, as we remember the cross, as we turn our hearts to communion, we remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, a part of the plan of God revealed for the ages and centuries and millennia before he actually came to this earth because you revealed it. Thank you that it wasn't a surprise. God, we remember what you've done for us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, we love you. I pray you would well up gratitude in our hearts. God, I pray that this experience of worship and partaking of communion would not be rote, um, but would be one that just leaves us in awe that you would love sinners like us. So God, we love you, and we remember what you've done for us now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.